Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. So up to this point, we've learned that Paul and Barnabas are running a very effective and successful school of discipleship in Antioch. They're bringing scores of new converts uh, into the kingdom, and they're training these new converts, which is absolutely the right, reasonable, and appropriate thing for them to be doing. Discipleship must be a integral part of our program. It's not just reaching the lost, it's discipling them, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has instructed us. And then this really interesting, strange thing happens. There are some people that I'm going to call Judaizers. I didn't make that term up. It's, it's what refers to these people who are stuck in the, uh, the old Judaic religion, trying to adhere to some of those rituals, practices, and incorporate that into their newfound Christianity. Judaizers. We have people that are the equivalent of that today. They come out of Jerusalem. They hear about what's going on in Antioch. And they enter Antioch upon the work, the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And evidently they begin to undermine the ministry of Paul and Barnabas there. And perhaps meeting with these new converts outside of the school of discipleship and trying to turn their minds over to a Judaistic Christian religion. Specifically, they come down there and it says in the very first verse, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Can, can, that, ought to, that ought to make you gasp to hear what they are trying to tell these new converts. And I will reiterate this a time or two throughout the sermon, but what has happened right here is one of the most critical points in all of church history, and that is the attempt to try and pervert the pure gospel. Keep, keep this in mind as we think about what is happening here and how those early church leaders dealt with this. Think of the, think of the outcome of this if it goes the wrong direction, the impact of this. Now, you can easily understand why Paul and Barnabas are upset by this. Somebody is coming in on their religion 
and teaching something that Paul and Barnabas, neither one, believe. They're teaching in their school the very opposite. And these people infringe on them, come in upon them, and start undermining their teaching. You can understand why that would make them very aggravated. And so the Bible indicates that Paul and Barnabas confronted these Judaizers. And they argued vehemently against what they were trying to do. The Bible indicates that Paul and Barnabas resort to having to go back to Jerusalem and address the church council there about what is going on. Because they cannot resolve it on the local level. These Judaizers are not backing down. They're not responding to the debate, the arguments. So they said, we'll just go straight to headquarters in Jerusalem. There, we know that there are disciples there. Three specific apostles are named Peter, James, and John. It appears as though from this meeting that James has now become the premier spokesman for the headquarters of the church. They are named as main members of this church council, not the only members. And there are evidently some Judaizers that are in the church leadership council. They are members, Luke points out, of the party of the Pharisees. Now, see, Jesus had a lot of problems with the Pharisees. They had some weird ideas. They were very religious. Uh, they were super spiritual, hyper spiritual, better than everybody else. He condemned them as being hypocrites in the way that they lived their life, demanding things of others that they themselves did not, ex did not expect of themselves. So coming out of this sect of the Pharisees, we find a number of them still a member of the Pharisees, but having come to uh, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's this group of people from the sect of the Pharisees that are giving Paul and Barnabas trouble. And we read again in verse 5. They have an opening statement at this church council meeting. And their opening statement reiterates what was already divulged in, in verse 1. Their opening statement is this. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now that's their stance. They're a part of the church council. That's their stance. And the church now has a responsibility of hammering this out. Which direction are we going to go? Are we going to adhere to this? What are we going to do? That's what the whole council meeting is about. And it becomes quite obvious that this false teaching is coming out of some of the leadership. They have a lot to try and straighten out to establish the future direction of the church. Peter steps up and he contributes his opinions. And he goes back to his experience of uh, having been convinced now that the Gentiles are a part of this plan of salvation. Remember the great sheet that was let down from heaven and him then consequently going over to the house of Cornelius and ministering to the Gentiles. So he relates all this. And then he says something very interesting. I find it fascinating how adept, skilled that these apostles were at taking Old Testament scripture and applying it to the New Testament situation. They were most assuredly 
led and inspired by the Holy Spirit to be able to apply scripture this skillfully because they did not spend their life learning how to apply Old Testament to Jesus and the new Christianity. This, this was the Holy Spirit teaching them what all of this means. So Peter goes back to the Old Testament and he says, brothers, you know how that sometime long ago God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now he is appealing to their understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament that God would open this up to the Gentiles. Peter didn't understand this as a Jew, uh, as a Jew, as one practicing the religion of Judaism. He only understood it as a convert to Christianity and the revelation of this vision. Now he goes back and he understands the context of this scripture. It's all unfolding for him. Now then, he says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. That's the weight of the law. That is specifically referring to the issue of circumcision. And he summarizes this as centuries of the Jews being under this unbearable burden of legalism. And now that the Gentiles are getting saved, Peter is appealing to his people with the Judaistic roots and say, we couldn't even bear up under this. Why should we want to put it on the Gentiles and make life miserable for them? So he makes this wonderful, logical speech. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That, that's as simple as it gets. How are we saved? Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not through circumcision. Even though, even though the opening statement was they must be circumcised, Peter boils it down. We're not saved by circumcision. We're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And then after Peter's speech, Paul and Barnabas give their speech. And then after they're done, and basically Paul and Barnabas are just telling the story of what's happening in Antioch. And their full conviction that God is saving the Gentiles. And God is baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. And that is their testimony. And then James steps up and he gives evidently the authoritative final word in this whole uh, situation. And this did not come about, uh, about quickly. This council meeting was... Uh, give and take. It was discussion. It was reasoning with one another. Tempers didn't flare. Uh, the, the, nobody marched out. They just hammered it out. They had to hammer it out. It was vital for the church that they come to the appropriate conclusion in this meeting. So when it's all said, and everybody's had their say, and James gets up and he says, I, I think this is what it boils down to, and this will be the judgment. He said, it's my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I, I can agree with that, right? Let's don't make it difficult for people to be saved. Instead, we should write to them, that is, write to these converts in Antioch, and, and the, the letter would circulate. It would become a part of early church doctrine, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat-strangled animals, 
uh, meat of strangled animals and from blood. And uh, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. It is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The council approved. They all consented. This sounds like a reasonable solution. Don't know if they voted or they expressed assent somehow. The letter was written. Paul and Barnabas carried the letter back with the official signatures of the big leaders in the church and they went back to Antioch and they read it to the people and say this is the way it's going to be we're going to settle this issue of circumcision once and for all now that summarizes the first 35 verses of the 15th chapter the last few verses merely give an account of Paul and Barnabas getting ready to go on the second missionary journey and I've mentioned this before and Barnabas is set on taking uh, John Mark and Paul puts his foot down and says, John Mark will not be going on this second missionary journey. And there was a strife, a conflict between them as Christian brothers, but they weren't able to work together in agreement on this issue, so they separated at that point. And we will soon see, not today, but in the next sermon, that then Paul forms a partnership with Silas. Paul and Barnabas are done. They're going to split after this. That gets down to them. Now I want to go back after having now outlined for you, summarized that 15th chapter, and pick up some bits and pieces in here that I, I think are important for us to understand that is delivered to us through this chapter. First of all, it it's stands out to me that we all have the potential of being corrupted in our thoughts, in our theology, in our behavior, in our belief system, by our past influences. That's what happened to these Judaizers the, of, the, of the sect of the Pharisees, is they could not rid themselves of these old feelings and sentiments and beliefs. They carried that over into their Christianity, and it infected their Christianity. They're not the only ones that are subject to that happening. People have a tendency to bring things from their previous life into their Christianity. Not everybody does that, but it is a very prominent temptation to take what you used to know and what you used to believe and to incorporate that into your newfound salvation. One of our most powerful influence in life is how we were raised. Now, you might want to take just a moment, but don't disconnect from my sermon. Think about you, because you know you better than anybody. And the way you were raised, and those quirky little things that because of the way you were raised, you just don't want to let go of them, even when it runs into conflict, maybe with your Christianity, or maybe with a revelation today of that's just not the way it is. But how, have you ever noticed how sometimes we have this tendency to just, you, have you done it? That's just the way I was raised. That's your excuse. Sometimes there's no excuse really for it except you defend yourself. That's just the way I was raised. Well, maybe you, the way he was raised was not right. And maybe we have to change. We, we just kind of uh, glorify everything as the way we were raised is the right thing to do. We really have to be honest and brave enough to investigate 
but was it right? That's really the question. Particularly, not just for all of your life, but particularly, especially when it comes to living out your Christian salvation. The way you were raised should not trump what the Bible says. Or what is logical, what is right, what is true. Forget how you were raised. You might have been raised wrong. I've had to work out a lot of things in my life that have been baggage for me because quite simply, people, it was the way I was raised. I was raised some by very, very sincere people. They loved God with all their heart, but they had a, a, a taste of legalism in their life. And I was raised under legalism. And you know, that's, that's hard to shake because you are challenging the people you loved and the people you admired and the way you were raised and everything you were taught that was right and true. And that old legalistic thing just keeps raising up in you from time to time. And you can't get stuck in that simply because, well, that's just the way I was raised. People are not going to excuse you for that. Isn't it interesting how the simplicity of salvation can be so frightening to those who previously relied on so heavily on their religious rituals and their ceremonies and their practices as a necessary part of their salvation, just like these Judaizers did. That their entire religion was based on works. And now they come into Christianity and they can't get rid of that feeling, that gnawing sensation that somehow I've got to incorporate works into my salvation or it just doesn't feel right. It's infecting their salvation. So Paul somehow managed to make this transition successfully. We don't know all Paul went through for 14 years of being discipled, who discipled him, who was able to break that old Judaistic hold on his life because, man, he was, he was a Jew of Jews. He bragged on what he used to be. He said, you think you were a Jew? He said, I was, I was more Jew than you were. I was, and he had all this, you know, uh, the, uh, the circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He had all these things to brag about. He said, of all Jews, I was, I was a super Jew. And somehow he broke that in his life. And came to the point where he could disciple others in Jesus Christ without going back to that garbage. Paul said, and you know, all those things that I thought were, were accomplishments in my life. He said, I just counted it but dung. It's worthless. It's meaningless. So he was able to get a perspective on this. Some of the disciples didn't abandon their old religion that quickly. Coming to Jesus and starting a new life with him really truly requires of every one of us a massive transformation of what you used to do, what you used to believe, how you used to behave. All your former theories, all your former philosophies have got to be subjected now to what God wants. And this massive transformation does not happen by having a remodel job. Salvation is not about a tune-up. It's not about a remodel. Salvation is about dying to what you used to be and be created a brand new creature. That's how the transformation takes place. 
It doesn't take place by incorporating a little bit of the old with a little bit of the new. Jesus even gave a parable about no man sews a new cloth to an old wineskin. It'll, it'll just break. It's got to be a complete remake, a total creation. And we see scriptures, and I don't have time to go into all of them. I don't have to go to all of them. You understand the language we're talking about. Old things are passed away. All things are become brand new. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. The old man has to die so the new man can live. Conversion to Christ is quite simply a radical, radical process. It's more than adapting. You don't adapt to Christianity. You're created a new creature. And the old things, the cumbersome things, the things of our past, that they have to go. You can't incorporate them into your newfound faith. The simplicity of grace is what we magnify. So why are we bent on complicating grace? Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, come on people, help me out. How you say, for by what? Grace. Are you saved through what? Very good. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the of very good. See, that's so simple. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith is not, that faith is the gift of God. It's so simple. Why do we complicate this? And here comes the Judaizers. And here comes their philosophy. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Doesn't that just kind of irritate you? Not just that they did it, but that people continue to do that. Now, I'm going to take this to a deeper level. This is doctrinal conflict in the early church. And it's more than just doctrinal conflict that threatened to tear the early church up. Let's understand the nature of this doctrinal conflict, which I've already touched on a little bit. Paul actually, in the second chapter of Galatians, goes back and revisits this encounter with these Judaizers. He recounts going to... Jerusalem and talking to the council. If you read the second chapter of Galatians. As a matter of fact, I think I actually want to go over there and read Galatians. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also, and we didn't know that, did we? And went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now there's a little bit of humility. Why did he go? I'm going to show those Judaizers. No, he said, I want to make sure I'm right. I'm going to get on board with the whole church council here. He was not rogue. He said, why don't I make sure I'm not spinning my wheels out here? I want to make sure I'm running the race correctly. So here he goes. Let's check it out. This matter arose because... Some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom 
we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. I love, <coughs> I love his summary. I love his, this is his perspective. What were they doing? They're spying on us. They didn't like our freedom. They came to enslave us. That's how he felt about it. We don't get this in the book of Acts. But now we're seeing how Paul felt about this whole encounter. We did not give them into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been tasked with preaching it to the Jews, the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, John, and those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace had been given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they're going to have their separate ministries, but both ministries are legitimate. All they asked was that we would continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. And we didn't really see that in this agreement either. So a little, little different, a little additional information. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him. Now this is something else we didn't read in the book of Acts. Peter made a visit to the Gentiles, but Peter did this really strange thing. For all of this, this revelation that Peter had about how God was now allowing the gospel to take be taken to Gentiles, he did this really weird thing. He went down to Antioch to visit Paul, but then he wouldn't sit down and fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul was going to have none of it. And he went up and got in his face. He said, what do you think you're doing? They're good enough to take the gospel too, but you will not eat with them. And Peter was ashamed that he behaved in such a way. So Paul recounts this in his letter to the Galatians. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that they, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Man, this is infecting the church. This has got to be solved right now. Peter behaves one way when he thinks nobody's looking. But when these Judaizers come down or somebody from headquarters come down, he doesn't want to have a conflict with them. So he quits fellowshipping the Gentiles. And he thinks nobody's going to notice. But Paul notices his duplicity. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. And how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen to this. Listen to this. Keep this in mind. The book of Galatians, keep it in mind. It's very powerful because you're going to run into some people that are going to be legalistic. And they're going to try and tie in certain areas of their life where they have to be obedient to what the Bible says. Then they quote the Old Testament. Well, now the Bible says, 
And there has to be an understanding of the, the, the proper application of Scripture. There are some things in the Old Testament that are transcendent truth. They don't stop being truth just because there's a New Testament. But there are some things in the Old Testament that are legal or ceremonial laws, uh, not moral laws, but legal, civil, ceremonial laws that apply to the Jews and didn't apply to the Gentile world or anybody else. And to take those things and think that that applies to us today is utterly absurd. And it's a frustration of the simple salvation of Jesus Christ. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified, and here's that famous passage. I've been crucified with Christ. Did you ever put together the context of this special passage where it falls right in the middle of his defense of his actions? But there it is, right buried in the middle of this. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, the influence of the old is gone. That's what it means to be saved and have this radical transformation. The influence of the old is gone. I've been crucified with Christ. I can't be who I used to be or bring part of who I used to be along with me. This is crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, Christ lives in me. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law... What a powerful conclusion. Christ died for nothing. Oh my goodness. If it can be done by your actions, if it can be done by the, the works, you don't need Jesus Christ. You just need to work harder. But if it can't be done, you need Jesus. For by grace are we saved. Now, salvation by works versus salvation by grace, that is the issue that lay at the feet of the early church. Which way are we going to go? There's no logical reason. These two issues should continue to be an issue today. But it does continue to be an issue. The church settled it back then. But it continues to be an issue. Why are people so stubborn to continue to try and make works a part of the salvation? It was already settled. Why are we doing this? It should not be anymore. There is a rapidly growing movement in Christianity today called the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't know if you've heard it or not, but you need to pay attention to this because you may run across this depending on what kind of circles you run in. But it's a Hebrew Roots Movement, and these people are fascinated by the Hebrew Roots that they claim to be a part of, not because they're Jews, but just because we trace our religion back to uh, the, the crisis moment of Judaism and, and uh, the, the Jewish roots that are there. And furthermore, the, being in love with Jesus, Jesus was a Jew, and studying the life and the ministry of Jesus here on earth, they knew that Jesus was, to a large degree, uh, amenable to the Jewish law. And so they said, if it's good enough for Jesus... It's good enough for me. Now, you see, the problem is they don't understand that when Jesus died, he brought an end to our accountability 
to the old Jewish law. He said, I have not come to destroy it, but I came to fulfill it. This is what the law was leading to. It was leading to a point where we would come to a cessation of the old sacrifices and Jesus would become the completion of that sacrificial system. We don't have to sacrifice animals, blood sacrifices anymore because Jesus paid it all. So it was a fulfillment. I've come to fulfill this. Come to change the direction of this now. And so this movement doesn't recognize that, yes, though Jesus may have walked according to the Torah in some instances, but other times he didn't walk according to the Torah, did he? I mean, whenever he, he defied the laws about picking grain on the Sabbath, well, he says Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for Sabbath. We don't, we don't serve the Sabbath. It's there for our convenience. And he said, even David, when his men were hungry, broke in to the, and, 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 and they, ate the, they ate the showbread. Man, you know, I mean, when we have communion around here, we're a little bit careful about letting the kids come up here and drink the juice and eat the bread because we kind of, you know, this is holy. We don't want to make something profane out of this. That once we're done, y'all can have leftovers. Come on, let's go. We don't do that. We get done with baptism, water baptism service up here. We don't invite the kids, put your trunks on. Come have a swim before we let the hot water out. Because there's something a little bit holy about this, you know. We don't want to do that. Well, you got the showbread in the temple. Nobody's going to touch that but the priests. But David and his men were hungry. And they figured that bread is there for somebody to eat. So they broke in and they ate it. Jesus said, if he can do that, I can rub grain and I can eat it on the Sabbath. So he wasn't perfectly obeying the Torah. But back to the Hebrew roots movement. They want to be like Jesus and they think he was under the Torah. So they begin to pick up Jewish behaviors and Jewish ceremonies. And the movement is very cultic and it's very legalistic. And in one discussion group I belong to, they were discussing how to assess legitimate prophecy. And somebody had said, well, prophecy ought to be proven as true. And one young lady popped up and said, all prophecy ought to point to, I'm getting ready again. This is a good answer. All prophecy ought to point to the Torah. And I was just like, wow, slam me to the ground. What is this nonsense about all godly prophecy ought to point to the Torah? And I'm quickly on my computer typing, all good, decent, godly, righteous prophecy ought to somehow glorify Jesus. Not pointing to the Torah. Well, she, she was stuck. Her needle was stuck. It didn't make any difference. What argument I had. Have you not read the book of Galatians? She had an argument for that. Have you not read about the, what happened with the death of Jesus? She had an argument for that. You know what? I think I met these, these Judaizers incarnate. When Paul argued till he was blue in his face, they would not listen to reason. That's the reason I say it's cultic. That they want to, they want to make doing works a part of their salvation. Judaizers and Hebrew roots people are not the only source of doctrinal conflict in the modern church. Legalists are always wanting to attach something else to salvation to complicate it. It's one thing to disciple people and teach them the finer points of how to live a life pleasing to God. It's an entirely another a matter to make certain conditions necessary for salvation. Salvation. 
other than simply saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. For instance, I encountered a young man when I was living in Alabama. He was working on the construction crew with me, and he came from a particular church that put a lot of emphasis on water baptism, too much emphasis on water baptism. This church, this denomination believed that you had to be baptized in water to be saved. No, no, you had to be baptized with a particular formula in water. It couldn't be in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. If, you're, if you got baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. You've got to let us baptize you in the name of Jesus. Then you'll be saved. And if people left their church and joined this church, they would first ask them, how were you baptized? What did they say when you went underwater? If they didn't say the right thing, they had to rebaptize you. So you had to get baptized. You had to get baptized in the name of Jesus. You had to be filled in the Holy Spirit. You had to speak in tongues. All those things in order to be saved. And I, I, I'm just, my, my jaw is dropping. I'm listening to this young man. And uh, we were kind of toying around on this crew because the, the man who taught me the construction, and I worked for him for a couple of years, uh, we loved to banter back and forth on Christian things out loud so people could hear. And he would say, well, how do you get saved? And I would respond with a simple answer so that everybody could hear what we were talking about. And uh, I also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the heart God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. And then this young man from the weird church, he said, don't forget to throw in a little sprinkling of water baptism too. I said, either the blood of Jesus Christ is all sufficient or it's insufficient. Now, you can vote on that today, whatever you want. Either it's all sufficient or if it's not, what else do you think has to be added for you to be saved? Is it water baptism? Or maybe it's church membership? Or, or maybe it's Holy Spirit baptism? Or maybe it's doing penance. So how, how many things do you want to add to it? The simplicity of salvation is destroyed by people adding stuff to what's required for salvation. When Martin Luther famously delivered his 95 Theses to the Archbishop, and by the way, we always talk about him nailing it to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. We don't know that he did that. It's, it makes a real good graphic picture, mental picture. But he did deliver the letter. And in doing that, he was challenging a church that at that point had for centuries developed into complicating salvation with so many various work requirements. And while studying scripture, Luther had this epiphany when he read the just shall live by faith. And suddenly, it just unfolded for him. And he was a monk. And, and, he's, and he was kind of like Paul the Jew. If there ever was a Jew, I was a Jew. And, and Luther was bragging, if there ever was a monk, I was the monkiest of them all. Nobody held a candle to me. 
when he suddenly read this, and it was like the light of heaven shined out, the just shall live by faith, and he suddenly realized, it's not by my works that I'm saved. And he had to write it down, and he had to deliver it to the church, and he said, we're wrong. We're wrong. He's going against church, centuries of church history and daring to defy them. And he goes up and says, we're wrong. We've missed it. We're not saved by these works. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He protested. We became Protestants because of that. Protesting a church that was centered on works. The second issue here was not just the doctrinal dispute. The second issue was the table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles that had to be worked out. James refused to force the Gentiles to endure this arduous, painful ceremony of circumcision, especially for adult men. And he rescues Christianity from legalism and this was a critical, pivotal moment for the church. And had the church leaders not seen clearly how to steer this new faith away from the old legalism, it would have impacted us to this day. It would have been nothing more than a revised version of Judaism that we continue to practice till today if the early church had erred at that point. And the church benefited greatly from the wise guidance of the apostle. Can you see how much was riding on the decision of those church leaders at that point, the entire trajectory of the church relied on Peter and James and John and the rest of the council clearly punching through this cloudy issue of what are we going to do about Judaistic religion marrying to Christian religion. They were able to separate this out and keep the church on track. What if they had failed? So James stands up and he says, uh, this, this, is all, this is the only rules. We're not going to have rules about circumcision. Forget that. He said, I'm, I'm going to make these rules. Abstain from food, sacrifice to idols. Abstain from blood. Abstain from the meat of strangled animals. And then fourth, which seems to be totally out of character with these other things, three, th these other three things, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Those, that one does not fit with the other three whatsoever. Because the fourth one is the only one that is legitimately a moral issue. So you're thinking, what is James doing here? He hit one issue of morality. And then he threw in three, what seems like, legalistic issues. Why did he do that? Well, I, I'm glad you asked. He did it because you are still trying to marry the Jews to the Gentiles. And it was not a sin to abstain from sacrificial meats. It was just a quirky thing. And James, in his wisdom, said, you know what? If we can give and take a little bit, as a church, we can have fellowship. And it's going to take a while for these Jews to work out their old Judaistic practices. And they are really struggling when they sit down with Gentiles and they watch the Gentiles doing things and eating things that they cannot do because it's so inbred in them. And he says, for the time being, to the Gentiles, he said, can you just get along? 
And if it requires you bending over just a little bit, giving just a little bit, and agreeing when you're fellowshipping with the Jews, don't do that. It's not worth it. It translates into day. You know, some people, some things people in the church, it's not worth it. We've got to get by this because being in unity in the faith is far more important than being right. Some issues, now some issues are very clear. We can't do that. But some issues, it's not worth it. And that's what James is saying to them. So he's saying, you know, you can get along if you just abstain from the, the, the meats, you abstain from the blood, you know, the, the, the strangled uh, animals, the uh, sacrificial animals. And, and then he said, here's something I think we all need to agree on is this, the sexual immorality. Now, why did he throw that in? Because you have to understand the culture of Antioch. And it was a center of great sexual immorality. And when I said people bring their past life into their new salvation experience, the Jews tried to bring their old religious things into it. The Gentiles tried to bring their old religious things into it. The Jews brought circumcision. The Gentiles brought sexual immorality. And they are basically saying to both of them, to the Jews and the Gentiles, regardless of where you came from, neither one of you can bring that junk in here. It doesn't belong. And these Gentiles had been raised in a culture that tried to normalize sexual immorality. It was a part of their religion to be sexually immoral. And James says this applies especially to the converts at Antioch. Make sure they understand you can't bring that junk in here. They are expected to come out of that former lifestyle. They're expected to give up what they used to believe in and what they used to practice. And they are all expected to find a way to be strong enough, mature enough to sit down at the same table together and fellowship in Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to the conclusion. And that is there are two things we learn from this chapter that the church absolutely cannot tolerate, must never tolerate. Number one, you can't tolerate false doctrine. It'll tear the church up. And number two, the church must not, cannot tolerate segregation. We are all one body of believers. If we are culturally divided, if we are racially divided, we're not fulfilling the mandate of Jesus Christ. Father, make them one as you and I are one. The church must be committed to doctrinal purity and we must be committed to a unity that crosses every social and every cultural and every racial barrier. And if the early church had to contend with those two distractions and they did so successfully, it would be tragic if we had to contend with them and we failed. If they got it right and they set the pattern and we failed in that, we'll have much to answer for. Worship team, would you come?